Good morning. Welcome to our time of teaching. Tom continues this series through the book of John. We're going to be reading from chapter 4 today, beginning in verse 27 through verse 42. And at this point, his disciples came, and they marveled that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. In the meanwhile, the disciples were requesting him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples, therefore, were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. And from that city many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, He told me all things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you have said that we believed. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Heavenly Father, may we be faithful workers in your field. Help us this season to show others Jesus Christ. Amen. Good morning. I want to run a couple of scenarios by you. If God wanted to show a powerful king in ancient times just how utterly unimportant his military might was when it came to conquering the enemies of God's people. How do you suppose God would go about about uh, teaching that lesson to the king and, and to his people? Well, he might, uh, he might send a short teenage shepherd boy armed with nothing more than a slingshot and some rocks to slay the gigantic, fearsome champion of the opposing army with one shot while the king and his, his rather reluctant army stood on the sidelines and watched. If Jesus wanted to show his disciples how utterly unimportant their personal credentials are when it comes to winning souls for the Savior of the world? How do you suppose he would go about doing that? Well, he might choose the most uncredentialed person that he could find <laughs> and use that person to launch 
a revival. While his own disciples stood on the sidelines and watched, or maybe didn't even care to watch because they were distracted by much more mundane things. That's what happens in this passage this morning. As you read through the Bible, it doesn't take long to figure out that our our Heavenly Father is very fond of unexpected object lessons. (laughs) And so is His Son. It's one of His favorite ways to impress upon us just how revolutionary is the life to which we've been called as His children. In our passage this morning, Jesus uses his encounter with the Samaritan woman and the aftermath of that encounter as an entirely unexpected object lesson for his disciples to drive home the real nature of God's assignment to his disciples. And that assignment is the amazing work of reaping God's harvest God's way. Now, there's a conversation in this passage that Jesus has with his disciples, and it's stuck right in the middle of the narrative that John the Apostle provides about what happened with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. Jesus is carefully orchestrating the events that we find recorded here to set up a lesson for his disciples. By the way, he did that a lot during his earthly ministry. Very often, he would sort of set the stage for a conversation that would occur after some event or some other conversation, and he would focus his attention on his disciples. Just before the episode at the well got underway, Jesus sent all 12 of his disciples to the nearby city of Sukkar to go gather food for a grand total of 13 people. Twelve men went to get food for thirteen men for a journey that would have been likely finished in about another day and a half. Do you think that that was necessary, that that all those guys were needed to accomplish that errand? Well, I don't know, but I can tell you that, that my very cute, very petite wife can carry half a week's groceries for four adults from the car to the house in one shot. And at that point, she hopes that I'll get up from my lazy boy and help her with the other half. This was all very intentional on Jesus' part. He made very sure that his disciples were elsewhere when the woman arrived at the well. And he made sure that they showed up again at just the right point in time. Just when he had brought his conversation with that woman to its intended endpoint, but before she left the well and was gone back to the city. See, Jesus made very sure that his disciples got a look, a good look, at the lowly instrument that he was about to use to launch a revival in Samaria. Our pride is the arch enemy of our willing usefulness to God. And so, our pride is constantly in God's crosshairs. We must decrease in order that Jesus might increase 
through us as God's instruments. So if there's one thing about God's dealings with us that should not surprise us, it's that God often surprises us. God works continually to astonish us. And that's what he was doing with his disciples here because that's how he breaks us of our pride. It's one of the ways. According to John 4, verse 27, when the disciples, all 12 of them, returned with their to-go order from the Sukkar semi-kosher Samaritan deli, they marveled that he had been speaking with a woman, a Samaritan woman. That was not done. Their astonishment wasn't, well, wow, this is great. It was, wow, this shouldn't be happening. And what's really cool is that God is continually at work in His children to flip that around. He takes our response, wow, this shouldn't be happening. And He turns it into, wow, this is great. God, from the moment that He brings us to faith in His Son, begins a process of turning our astonished disbelief that He would do things the way He does into astonished praise because He does things the way He does. The disciples were still at this point a little bit like the Old Testament prophet Jonah. Maybe a lot. (laughs) They They were pleased that They had been picked out from the mass of humanity to be wingmen to the promised Messiah, the King of the Jews. They were eager for Him to usher in His great kingdom and to grant to them positions of glory and grandeur in that kingdom. In fact, very shortly before Jesus went to the cross, they were still wrangling over who would get the chair just to the right of the throne of Jesus in His kingdom. I'm sure the cross was a great surprise. But the notion that Jesus had commissioned those same disciples to give up every ounce of glory and grandeur in this life in order to bring His gift of living water to the most despised people in the world... Well, that was quite a different matter. At the top of the long list of things that make darkness dark and light light is this. Darkness exalts the proud and humiliates the humble. Light humiliates the proud and exalts the humble. God has to reprogram us to hate the darkness and love the light. And that's a lesson that we pretty much all have to learn the hard way because in practice, we don't let go of the darkness easily because we're too proud to let go of it easily. Jesus' own disciples were unpleasantly astonished to find Him violating all manner of cultural and religious taboos by talking face-to-face with a socially insignificant morally despised woman from a theologically discredited community. 
But who was it in this passage this morning that got taken to school by Jesus? It was the disciples. And who was it that blew the curve for getting a passing grade in that class? It was a Samaritan woman. And we talked about this last week a bit, but it bears repeating. It's not incidental. It's foundational to the Christian life. Jesus sought out the poor, the downtrodden, the socially, morally, and spiritually outcast. He sought them out. If you and I see practical godliness in terms other than those, we will not be doing godly things. The things that we do may look godly to us, and they may look godly to other people, but they will not look godly to God. In Luke 7, Jesus allowed a prostitute not only to be in the same room that He was in, but to wash His feet with her tears and dry them with her hair, while the very religious, very pious very spiritually dead Pharisee who had invited him to dinner looked on in abject horror. If we, in the name of protecting Christ's reputation, take the same approach toward the despised people of this world that that Pharisee took, we will be shaming and profaning the name of Jesus, not protecting it and certainly not honoring it. Now this is a good place to point out that Jesus treated women very differently, very differently than His culture did. It's no small matter that Jesus so often presents women as examples of genuine faith and godliness, as souls dearly loved by Him and powerfully used by Him. There's the prostitute in Luke Seven that I just mentioned, the woman who poured her costly perfume on Jesus' head in Matthew 26, He memorialized her. He said, all generations will remember this woman. The widow who gave out of her poverty in Luke 21. Mary Magdalene in John 20, who was the first to behold the empty tomb, the first to behold the resurrected Jesus, and the first to tell the disciples that Jesus was alive from the dead. Those are just a a few examples of how greatly Jesus values women. And just so you have a reference point for how radical that was, (laughs) some of the most respected theologians of Jesus' day taught that one of the quickest paths to hell for a man was to teach the Torah, the law of God, to a woman. While the religious elite were withholding the knowledge of God from women, the Son of God was honoring women as some of His most beloved and devout followers. We men need to have that constantly in mind and in our hearts. We need to treat women the way Jesus treated women. Here in John 4, though none of Jesus' disciples had the fortitude to actually challenge Him on it, 
Verse 27 tells us what they were thinking. The problem with thinking something when Jesus is anywhere around is that he's going to know it anyway, right? Said None of them actually said, what do you seek or why do you speak with this woman? If they had had the guts to ask him those questions, I suspect his, his answer would have been right in line with what he had just told the woman at the well. You ask me what I seek? I seek true worshipers of God who will worship in spirit and in truth. And guys, that's why I had this conversation with this woman. I was making her a true worshiper. But that conversation didn't happen. The disciples quickly forgot about the woman because they had other things in mind. Food. In verses 31 to 38, the disciples get schooled by Jesus. (laughs) And the first topic, the first subject of discussion is nutrition. Real food. They said to to Jesus, Rabbi, eat. You know why they did that? Because they had just come back from Sukkar with a whole bunch of food and they couldn't eat until their master had been served. So they were very interested in him being ready to eat. They had been walking for a day and a half, and it was hot sun, and they were ready to eat. The woman, on the other hand, (laughs) seemed to kind of forget about physical sustenance, didn't she? She left her water pot at the well, and she headed to her city. She was on a mission to share the water of eternal life with thirsting people that she cared about. And while she was off tending to that, Jesus was having this conversation with his disciples. They asked him to eat, and so he took that cue and started his lesson. He said to them, I have food to eat that you don't even know about. And in predictable fashion, the disciples said to each other, to each other no one brought him anything to eat, did they? And the problem with talking with each other outside of Jesus' hearing is that he's going to hear it anyway, right? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's a great nutrition lesson. I'm sure most of you in this room know how to finish this sentence. Man does not live by bread alone, but by... Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's not hard to get believers from our circles to agree enthusiastically that our necessary daily food is the Word of God. Even if many of us don't bother to avail ourselves of that food. But what kind of food is Jesus talking about here? He says, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. To accomplish the will of God by doing the work of God. And the work that Jesus had just been doing was proclaiming to a lost soul the good news of eternal life that He alone gives so that she was saved. He calls us as His disciples to do that same work in order to accomplish the will 
of God. We must do the work of God, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ to lost men and women in order to accomplish the will of God, which is to spread His kingdom among men. While these men were worrying about earthly food that satisfies only for a little while, the woman that they so quickly dismissed from their thinking (laughs) was enjoying a feast. A feast of usefulness to God. The kind of feast that Jesus was just talking to His disciples about. Do you ever consider that your own proclamation of the Gospel is your necessary food? Do you ever consider that the way you become sustained and energized and motivated to be useful to God is by being useful to God? See, we think we have to wait till we're all grown up in the Lord to become effective as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. But Jesus tells us that the surest way to grow up in Him is to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ now. We get it backwards. As I pondered this passage, God reminded me once again what it was, more than anything else, that kick-started my own motivation to dig into the Word of God and become a doer of that Word. When God first brought me to faith in Jesus, I was a lot like this woman. In fact, the night I got saved, I started telling everyone who would listen about Jesus. I went down the street a few houses and I talked to a friend and I talked to his parents. And then from there, I went back to my high school and I started telling everybody that I knew about Jesus. And that carried on into college. And you know what happened? In college, I got into a bunch of conversations with Buddhists and Muslims and Baha'i and Jehovah's Witnesses and Hindus and Church of Christ and all these different different positions. And, and people were challenging what I was telling them. They weren't just buying it. And they were asking me questions that I did not have ready answers for. And I strongly suspected that God did have ready answers. And so... I began reading the Word of God voraciously and studying it. And then something else really cool happened. The more I read and studied and prayed back to God the things that I saw about Him and His Word, the more my appetite for Him increased. Without even realizing what was happening, it all became much more about beholding Him and knowing Him and delighting Him than it was about having good answers. See, it was in the doing that I became genuinely equipped to do. Because I came to know Him and love Him and desire to please Him. Knowing the Word of God, beloved, knowing the Word of God and doing the Word of God, those are the two basic food groups for Christians. Knowing the Word and doing the will, the work of God. 
If you're eating regularly from both of those menus, your God concept is going to go right off the charts. You're going to hear from Him and you're going to see the things that He does through you. And when that happens, guys, nobody has to nag you to study your Bible or live for Jesus or talk about Jesus. There are several men and women in this room who put me to shame when it comes to boldly sharing their faith. Some of them are a lot younger than me. And God is using them to bring back that fire that I used to have to share the gospel. I don't even know, I really don't even understand where it went. It hasn't been gone. I've talked with a lot of people about Christ. But I'm finding a new joy in, in just seeing conversations as divine appointments. And, and you, know, you know why? It's because I see great joy in other people who are treating conversations as divine appointments. And it's contagious. The joy is contagious. The first lesson in our Lord's afternoon class with His disciples that day was about real food, and the second was about real farming. The harvest of God is abundant, and that harvest is now. I put those two things together because they're really inseparable here. The timing of all the events in this passage, as I I mentioned before, is a thing of beauty. (laughs) As Jesus began that afternoon's class with His disciples, the Samaritan woman was on her way back to the city of Sukkar to tell the men of that city, yes, the men of that city, about Jesus. Some Christians don't think women are supposed to witness to men. That's all I'll say about that. It didn't seem to give Jesus any heartburn. I believe John's record here of the conversation between Jesus and His disciples is condensed. It's a Reader's Digest version. I believe that conversation went on for some time while they were eating lunch together. I don't think Jesus refused the food that they brought. He was just pointing them to some greater food. And I think by the time... Jesus spoke the words that were recorded in verse 35. Something amazing was starting to happen. Because in verse 30, it says that when this woman talked to the men about Jesus, the men came out of the city and they started heading to meet with Christ. And I think that by the time Jesus said to the disciples what He says in verse 35, that group of men that was approaching the well from the city had become visible in the distance to Jesus and the disciples. And I think it was at that point that Jesus said to them, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold! I said, you lift up your eyes, the fields are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. In Amos, the Old Testament prophet Amos 9, verse 13, God says, Behold, days are coming when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes will overtake him who sows seed. 
and the mountains will drip with sweet wine. That verse is a vivid word picture of provision from God that is so abundant and so constant that it doesn't come in cycles. It comes as a steady flow. An overflowing well. The planting and the harvesting are going on at the same time. And last, the last crop is still yielding. Jesus collapses in this passage, he collapses the timeline between sowing and reaping. It shouldn't surprise us. The same one who turned water into finest aged wine in an instant at the wedding in Cana now tells his disciples that the harvest to which they and we had been appointed by God is right now, and that's true every day. And the object lesson that Jesus used to prove his point was walking toward them as he was saying these words. The harvest was coming to them. Beloved, the assignment to gather in God's abundant harvest is ours. And the season for that harvest is now. In Luke 10, verses 1 through 3, Jesus sent 70 guys out in pairs to go into the cities into which he was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then he said, without missing a beat, he said, Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. So first he tells them to pray for laborers. And then he says, ah, you're it. Don't you love Have you ever had one of those bosses where every time you give him a suggestion, he takes it as a volunteer? You know, you're the one that's going to take care of that. That's the way God deals with us, but he, he doesn't necessarily wait until we volunteer. <laughs> Do you suppose that all 70 of those men uh, had the spiritual gift of evangelism? Well, that would have been quite a feat because the Holy Spirit hadn't been given yet to indwell and to give spiritual gifts. That was That's going to come later. There's no question that in His church, God gives some an extraordinary gift of evangelism. Ephesians 4.11 says that. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastor-teachers. Some, not all. But what is the purpose of the spiritual gifts that God gives to the church. This is important. Right there in that passage, the very next verse, after he talks about God giving some as, he says, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of of Christ. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Let me ask you a question. How does having gifted evangelists in our midst in our local body, a body that's made up at least probably mostly of already justified believers, how does that equip a body of believers for the work of service to which God has has appointed us? Well, think of it this way. Not every member of the body has the spiritual gift of teaching, right? But the writer of Hebrews said that all the believers to whom he was writing 
should, by the time they were reading what he said, be able to teach. They ought to be teachers by now. Not every member of the body of Christ has the spiritual gift of service, but we're all called to serve. Not every member of the body of Christ has the gift of mercy, but we are all called to be merciful. Not every member of the body has the gift of hospitality, but we are all called to be hospitable. Not every member of the body has the gift of giving, but we are all called to give liberally and cheerfully. Not every member of the body of Christ has the gift of evangelism, but we are all called to speak freely of our Savior and Master in the presence of unbelievers. All of us. We may think that the sum total of God's assignment for us who do not have the spiritual gift of evangelism is to ask God to give us more of those people so that we can have a bountiful harvest. But God doesn't put evangelists in the local body so you and I don't have to bother with talking to our neighbors and our co-workers and our family members and the people that we encounter day by day. He puts evangelists in the local body to equip and encourage the body both corporately and individually to proclaim Christ. See, God loves to teach by example, so He gives us really good examples. He plants them right in our midst. We watch what they do and we say, I need to do more of that. And I can. I've been enabled. I've been called. I've been enabled. I can do it. I think we give too little thought to the role each of us plays in making our local church effective by God's grace in doing evangelism together as a body, following the lead of our gifted evangelists, being great resources to those evangelists. But we also give too little thought to the role that each of us plays in reaching the people in our own sphere of influence with the good news of Jesus Christ. I don't believe every Christian is required by God to go out and proclaim the gospel on street corners, but every Christian is called by God to proclaim Christ. Did the woman at the well argue with the people in her city when she went back to Sukkar to get them to believe in Jesus? No, because it wasn't her assignment to get them to believe in Jesus. It's amazing how often we get that wrong. She just shared her testimony of what Jesus had said and done in her midst and in her heart. And then she gave a very simple invitation. She said, come and see. Same thing that Andrew, in effect, said when he went to Simon Peter, his brother, in chapter 1. He said, we've found the Messiah. Come with me, I'll introduce you to him. Same thing that Philip explicitly said to Nathaniel in chapter 1. We found the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote, Come and see. The Samaritan woman said to the men of her city, Come, see a man who told me all the things I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? And they did. They came and they saw and they met Jesus and they listened to Jesus. And they believed. Many of them believed. 
The call to evangelize is not a call to change people's minds. It's not a call to change people's hearts. That's God's business. It is a call to bear witness to God's witness of His Son. His witness through the prophets and apostles in His Word and His witness in your life. Along with John the Baptist, we get to say to the world, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We simply bear witness of Jesus and God does all the heavy lifting. Some of my dear brothers and sisters have have said that the essence of the gospel that we're called to proclaim is follow Jesus. I want to respectfully challenge that a little bit. I'm not saying that's all wrong. But in terms of emphasis, I just want to throw a couple of things out at you here. And you can examine the word yourself to see if they're true. In the Gospels, when did someone other than Jesus tell another person to follow Jesus? Well, I looked up every occurrence of the word follow and of every permutation of that word, and I could, the, here's what I found. Maybe I missed something, but here's what I found. The only person who ever said, follow Jesus, was Jesus. John the Baptist didn't command his disciples to follow Jesus. They said, behold. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And a couple of them left and went to follow him. And then they talked to Jesus, and then they were hooked. By the way, when when Jesus actually said to Andrew and Peter, follow me, that was after that conversation. Those who were following Jesus told lost people to behold him. They told lost people to come and see him. They told lost people to believe in him. Jesus is the one who over and over tells those who come to Him, follow Me. I'm not suggesting in any way that believers are not called to follow Jesus. We most certainly are. The epistles are written to believers and they're all about being imitators of Christ. That's what disciples of Jesus do. The goal of our witness of Jesus And the heart of our gospel proclamation is the same as John's goal when he wrote this gospel, that lost people may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing they may have life in His name. That's how disciples get born. That's how people pass from eternal death into eternal life by grace, through faith, in Christ. Jesus made a big deal in his conversation with the disciples here about their calling from God to reap that for which they themselves had not labored, (laughs) to reap what others had sown. Now, some of the commentators say that that's talking about how the prophets did the sowing and now the apostles are doing the reaping. I think it's more immediate than that. In this passage, as the disciples watched these men from Sukkar approaching the well, who had done the sowing that God had instantly turned into an abundant harvest for the picking a Samaritan woman. 
And of course, Jesus Himself had done both the sowing and the reaping in that woman's heart that very day. I believe the point Jesus is making about this reaping what others have sown is simply that the Lord of the harvest is the only one who's sovereign over the hearts of men and women and children. He's at work continually preparing an abundant harvest for us to go pick. And He's continually sowing more seed through us. That'll keep that harvest going strong until the glorious day when all the harvesting is done. You and I are just laborers. Planting, watering, harvesting. But it's His crop. It's His field. He's the Lord of the harvest. He's sovereign over the hearts of men. He's the one who saves. We're just fruit pickers mostly. All the hard work, all the hard work is His work. All right, who's qualified? I've got just a couple of more quick things I want to talk about. Who's qualified to proclaim the good news of eternal life in Jesus Christ? It's the wrong question, right? The question is, who qualifies you to proclaim the good news of eternal life in, in Jesus? And the answer, of course, is Jesus does. John 15, verse 16, Jesus said to His disciples, You didn't choose Me. I chose you. And I appointed you that you might bear fruit that your fruit should remain, that you might go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He may give to you. Do you avoid talking about Jesus with unbelievers because you feel unqualified to do so? You feel inadequate? Do you avoid talking with unbelievers about Jesus because you're afraid that they're going to throw something back at you that you're not going to be able to, to respond to? You're not going to have an answer? Do you kind of avoid talking to unbelievers because you're afraid that your knowledge of the Bible is just not rigorous enough? You're going to run into Christopher Hitchens somewhere and he's going to blow you away? This woman was so excited about Jesus that she didn't even consider any of that. She just talked about Him. It wasn't about her. It was about Him. Can you talk about Him? He's not commissioned you to convince anybody. He's not commissioned you to persuade anybody. He's commissioned you to talk about your Savior and Master to unbelievers. I think all the time now, and I'll probably say this a thousand more times before I die, about Bob Deffenbaugh's statement that evangelism is praising God in the presence of unbelievers. Can you do that? wish I had time to tell you my mom's story. Legal secretary from age 17 to age 72. And the one thing everybody that she ever worked with knew was that she belonged to Jesus Christ. And she was excited about Him. I got to do her funeral. I met influential attorneys and secretaries and paralegals. That's, they all knew that about her. She wasn't a closer she just loved to talk about Jesus. Sorry, I don't, didn't have time to say that, so I said it anyway. If you and I will simply talk about our Savior with unbelievers the same way we talk about Him with believers, just say the same things. If we'll just pull the governor off that 
engine and let it run, God will do eternally great things through us in the lives of the people around us. We don't have to change our, we don't have to change our, our mode of speech. We just have to keep talking the way we do. It's not about us, it's about Him. God will magnify your witness of Jesus Christ. Just speak the truth about Jesus. We can do that. God's not waiting to see perfect conformity to Christ in you before He puts you to use to point other people to His Son. I'm not saying, that doesn't mean that it's not important how you live. We're commanded in passage after passage, and especially in the epistles, to adorn the doctrine of our great God and Savior with godly lives. That matters. But those two assignments both start today. And, and the cool thing is they feed each other. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. There is no greater motivation to live a godly life than to be proclaiming Christ to other people. God, the, the Spirit just, He just loves on us and he, he tweaks us and He corrects us and He shows us because when we're telling other people about the Lord, we want, we want to be good representatives. And, and on the other side, there is no greater enhancement to our message than a, than a godly life. The two feed each other. You don't wait until one's done and then start the other. It's not how it works. Both begin today. And we're not called to baby steps in either case. We're called to bold, God-dependent obedience out of love for Jesus Christ. Last thing, to whom should we be proclaiming the good news? Well, Verse 39, when these men came out of the city to talk with Jesus and they talked with Him and many of them got saved and they went back and they said, they said to the woman, no longer do we believe because of what you told us. We know that this is the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. It doesn't mean everybody in the world gets saved. It means that Jesus is saving people. He is he is laid out a harvest for us to pick from every tribe and tongue and nation in this world and from every walk of life and from every race and from every category of humanity. This was a powerful and stunning lesson to the all-Jewish disciples of Jesus. It was a lesson to teach them that their calling was not to go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. For a time, He told them to do that. But their ultimate calling <laughs> was to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. To share the gospel with despised Samaritans, with pagans, with Roman officials, with everyone. Jesus is the Savior of the world, and you and I are His ambassadors, bringing the good news of eternal life in Jesus Christ to the world He came to save. And the fruit that we get to gather in that harvest is fruit that God has prepared. Look around you this morning. Look at the people sitting beside you. 
they are the produce of God's gracious harvest, and you're going to get to spend eternity with them. How about if we add some more to that number by His faithful work through us? Loving Father, make us joyful, faithful harvesters. (laughs) You haven't asked us or commanded us to do something that even demands very much of us. We might get killed someday for doing it, but it's really not hard to do. We acknowledge, Father, we confess that our reluctance is not because we are not able. You have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We're not lacking anything. We have the most marvelous message that this world will ever hear. And that message is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Father, make us faithful at proclaiming Christ. We ask it in His precious name. Amen.